Life-threatening methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus infections occur most frequently in healthcare settings among patients with weakened immune systems. What do clinicians need to know about preventing MRSA infections in hospitals, nursing homes, dialysis centers, and other healthcare facilities? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. John Jernigan, Deputy Chief of the Prevention and Response Branch of the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Jernigan. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's talk a little bit about how common MRSA is in healthcare settings. Well, MRSA is common. We know that it causes about 8% of all healthcare-associated infections for some specific infection types, such as surgical site infection, ventilator-associated pneumonia, bloodstream infection, the proportion is even higher. And we know that there are a much larger proportion of patients who actually carry MRSA. And this is an important problem because they colonized patients can serve as reservoirs of transmission. So MRSA is very prevalent in healthcare facilities in the United States. And what types of precautions should clinicians use in order to prevent transmission of MRSA? I mean, we do the standard universal precautions for all patients with good hand washing and hygiene, but are there other precautions that should be used? Right. Because MRSA is caused almost exclusively by transmission from patient to patient, usually indirectly through the hands of healthcare workers or the contaminated clothes or sometimes contaminated equipment, The CDC actually recommends caring for patients under what's known as contact precautions. So in addition to standard precautions, this would include routine use of gloves and a gown for any contact with the patient or their environment. There are also some provisions in contact precautions for treating a patient in a single room if possible and also to use certain designated patient care items such as stethoscopes and blood pressure cuffs that don't move from patient to patient without being disinfected first. Is this assuming that a clinician will first screen a patient for MRSA, that that way they'll know which precautions to take? Well, the recommendation is to use contact precautions for those patients who are known to be either infected or colonized with MRSA. And there are two different ways to know this. Number one is we can identify patients who are colonized with MRSA by looking at clinical cultures, that is, cultures that are obtained for, you know, diagnostic purposes. And if MRSA shows up there, you know that the patient is colonized, and that's an indication for contact precautions. One of the questions is, do we need to look harder for patients who are colonized with MRSA? We know that if we take that strategy, we will miss a certain proportion of patients who are carriers of MRSA, but are asymptomatic from it and are not recognized because the clinical culture was not obtained. There are those that argue that it's important to identify that subset of patients in order to apply contact precautions consistently amongst the entire universe of carriers. And in order to do that, you have to do active surveillance. Now, it's possible that you might be able to control MRSA in your facility without taking that step. And in fact, CDC recommendations for control of MRSA and other multidrug-resistant organisms actually recommend sort of a two-tiered approach. The first tier is a series of recommendations that focus on standard precautions, that focus on instituting a multifaceted program in your hospital that includes activities and interventions 
across a wide variety of disciplines, including education, training of personnel, administrative controls. The use of antimicrobials judiciously is obviously a big part of any antimicrobial resistance control program, environmental measures, and doing surveillance for infection rates and feeding those back. Now, there's a series of recommendations in those areas that we think that all hospitals should implement, and active surveillance is not part of that first tier. After you successfully implemented that program, you look at the results, see what's happening in your hospital with regards to MRSA infection rates and potentially colonization rates. If you feel like those rates are going down and you're controlling them, then maybe you don't need to do active surveillance. But the document says if you're not controlling MRSA or other MDROs, then you should go to a second tier of interventions, which include intensified measures across all those categories that I mentioned before. But one of those is potentially the use of active surveillance cultures. So the summary is they may not need to be used universally and all the time, but in settings where there's continued and uncontrolled transmission of MRSA, it's something that the CDC recommends you should consider. So let's say a facility does decide to do active surveillance. How often does a screening need to be performed? Is it just on admission or does it need to be repeated? Well, probably the most important time is at the time of admission because we know that there are a fair proportion of patients being admitted to some units that are carriers of MRSA. Uh, There are a number of reports in the literature that suggest that as many as 10 to 15% of patients coming into some unit types are unrecognized carriers of MRSA. So it's important to apply the appropriate infection control precautions as soon as possible there. Now, if your patient's there for an average length of stay of only three to four days, it's probably not that critical to repeat the surveillance culture. If they're there for a prolonged period of time, it's possible that they may have acquired MRSA sometime during the admission, and you might not know about it unless you did some subsequent follow-up surveillance culture. One commonly applied technique is to culture patients on admission and then weekly thereafter. Others have taken different approaches. There's no real magic solution, but the bottom line is for patients who are there for a long time, it may not be a bad idea to screen them intermittently during the course of this prolonged hospitalization to make sure they haven't acquired it and need additional infection control precautions applied. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. John Jernigan, Deputy Chief of Prevention and Response for CDC's Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. We're discussing the physician's role in controlling MRSA in healthcare settings. Now, let's say a physician has a patient who tests positive as a carrier for MRSA in a hospital setting. What are the CDC's recommendations for visitors who come to see patients with MRSA infection? Is casual contact okay? Do they need to take certain precautions? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that in terms of the risk to the visitor, the risk is very, very low. We're not so concerned that visitors might acquire MRSA and be at risk for subsequent infection or adverse event related to that. What we're more concerned about generally in the healthcare setting is preventing transmission from patient to patient. If a visitor comes into a hospital, interacts with a patient, and leaves directly without interaction with other patients, chances are they're not contributing epidemiologically to transmission to any significant extent in that hospital. The recommendations on this are pretty flexible, and I know that various hospitals have tried different things. Some hospitals recommend that visitors follow the exact same precautions as healthcare workers, although one could argue that it's not 
as important as the healthcare worker because the healthcare worker, after all, is going to spend their entire day going from patient to patient to patient to patient. So it's critically important that they avoid serving as a vector for transmission. Again, for the visitor who's coming in to see that patient and then leaving the hospital without interaction for other patients, maybe it's not quite as critical. So in my personal opinion, I think it's okay to come up with sort of a separate visitor policy and be a little more relaxed about that. I think probably educating the visitors on good hand hygiene techniques is probably the most important step. What about patients in long-term care facilities for whom group activities like meals are very important? What do you recommend for that? Thank you for raising the issue of the long-term care facility. This is a big unanswered question in my opinion. It is true that the prevalence of MRSA carriage in long-term care facilities is high probably a lot higher than in acute care facilities. We've seen some recent studies that suggest in some long-term care facilities, the carriage rate is as high as 40 to 50%. On the other hand, the infection rate amongst those patients is very low because in general, it's a much lower level of acuity of care. There are less use of invasive devices, although there are some clearly, and long-term care is heterogeneous in terms of the acuity of care as well. There's long-term acute care, which is much more like you know, an acute care hospital, even intensive care unit care. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who don't have much in the way of indwelling devices and simply residential care. And another question is, that's largely unanswered, is is that high prevalence of MRSA in long-term care due to transmission that's occurring there? Or is it simply a reservoir for patients who might have acquired MRSA carriage during some previous healthcare stay in an acute care setting. And they simply come and are there for a long time, and in some sense, long-term care facilities may be serving as a, a sink, actually. We don't know the answer to that. We know there's a lot of MRSA there, but we don't know if long-term care facilities are drivers of transmission of MRSA. Obviously, the practicalities of implementing contact precautions in single rooms, et cetera, and so forth, is much more difficult and problematic in the long-term care setting. And so I think recognizing the unanswered questions about whether long-term care facilities are drivers of transmission and the concerns about the logistical difficulties of caring for patients using these aggressive infection control techniques probably warrants a more intermediate approach. And in fact, the CDC guidance is a little bit more lenient there and is a little more focused on sort of standard precautions for control of MRSA in those settings. And I would encourage readers to go look at that document and and look at some of the differences there. But I think it is important to keep into consideration the fact that for many patients, this is their home, and isolation is more difficult. Now, another special consideration might be preventing MRSA surgical site infections. Is there any value for clinicians to adjust their perioperative antibacterial prophylaxis to include vancomycin to cover MRSA? Well, it's another good question. That's unanswered. We know from data reported to the CDC through the National Healthcare Safety Network that for some surgical procedures, particularly cardiac and orthopedic surgery, the rate and proportion of infections caused by methicillin-resistant staph has increased over the recent years. And this has raised many clinicians to ask the question, well, look, if I follow the recommended antimicrobial prophylaxis agents, which are mainly beta-lactam agents, which don't have activity against MRSA, they're asking the questions, am I missing something here? Should I be adding vancomycin? We really don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I certainly can't fault the clinician 
who's seeing a high proportion of MRSA infections amongst their surgical side infection rates for wanting to include vancomycin in their regimen. However, the randomized controlled trials that have looked at this really haven't documented the benefit here, so it's something that still needs to be studied. I would caution clinicians to not forget about the non-gram-positive infections. Although MRSA is increasing proportionally and as a rate, there are still many, many infections that are caused by gram-positive and other pathogens that wouldn't be covered if you used vancomycin alone. So if they are going to use an agent with activity against MRSA, don't forget about using an agent that covers the other gram-negative pathogens as well. I'll also mention that there's an increasing interest in the use of screening patients preoperatively for staph aureus carriage and considering decolonization in advance of the surgery. This is a practice that has been endorsed by some surgical societies. Again, the data aren't quite there yet, but there are data that are accumulating. And I know that there are some randomized controlled trials that are pre-publication that suggest that this could be a beneficial practice. So that's something to keep your eye on as another potential preventive strategy for staph surgical side infections and other post-operative staphylococcal infections. And just one final question in the short time we have left. There have been a number of legislative efforts, both on the state and national level, requiring MRSA screening as well as public reporting of MRSA rates in hospitals. Is there any evidence that this legislation has had an impact on rates of hospital-associated MRSA infections? Not yet. This legislation obviously reflects an increasing public awareness of this important problem and their interest in controlling it. So awareness of the problem can certainly be a good thing, but it's important for folks to remember that, in particular with the MRSA folks legislation, that active surveillance is only a single component of what we think should be a comprehensive multifaceted prevention strategy. Again, CDC has issued guidance that provides sort of a roadmap for healthcare facilities that spans a wide array of potential interventions, only one of which is the use of active surveillance. So I I think it remains to be seen. Awareness is a good thing. I think there could be potential unintended consequences of these legislative efforts that we need to be aware of and need to look for and providing adjustments as we learn more about the impact of these efforts. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. John Jernigan. We've been discussing the physician's role in controlling MRSA in healthcare settings. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment focused on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157, and thank you for listening.